Hey, Crazy and the King fans, welcome to the bonus episode. This is the full interview with Melissa Hickson, wife and champion of Michael Hickson. If you haven't heard our latest episode titled Trigger Warning, the story of Michael Hickson, after you're done here, go check out that story. It is a must-listen-to podcast for all diversity and inclusion supporters. And I just want to say going into this is that one reason why we have Melissa's interview separate is that as a strong black woman who had to advocate and champion for her husband, Melissa has taken a lot of ill will from the doctors at St. David at Family Elder Care. And I hope you notice this in kind of your catch-up reading about the story is that a lot of what happened to Michael was then deflected into what their perception of Melissa was. And I can say from my own many interactions with her over the last couple of weeks. I applaud her grace. I applaud her tenacity under pressure. And I can say that she probably rose to the situation uh, better than, than I would have certainly, but probably better than most of us would as we advocate for the love of our life. So join me, listen in, share, support the Hickson family with their GoFundMe if you're able to, and definitely catch Trigger Warning, our latest episode. It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get rid. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. So we are going to welcome today Mrs. Melissa Hickson, uh, husband and champion of Michael Hickson, um, who recently passed away after a bout with COVID, and we'll get more into that detail later. But I want to first welcome Melissa to the show. Thank you for joining us during this incredibly difficult time and, and continuing your advocacy and, and, and work on Michael's behalf. How are you doing right now? So right now I'm just um, trying to pick up the pieces, just trying to figure things out, trying to kind of just um, come to a place of acceptance and moving forward, just trying to make sure my kids are stable and everything's okay with them and just work on some things right now just to, just to kind of pull everything together and be able to move forward. So just a, going through kind of the, I don't want to say normal, but the, the parts of, of grieving that we all have when we lose something, how, how, are, how are the kids doing? Uh, I know you guys have, uh, have five kids, is that right? We do. Yeah, so the kids, are, they're doing okay. Um, I would say, you know, that they're still, my oldest really took everything the hardest. They were the closest. They had the longest relationship. So to me, and also too, she helped me when he was home at one point, take care of him. And she was kind of my go-to person, mm -hmm. you know, to help me all this time. So she really had the closest, I think, attachment and she's taking it the hardest. So she's, you know, still going through her process with, with grieving and, but you know, all in all, majority, all of us are really angry. You know, two of my kids want to be doctors and I know that, you know, this has kind of pushed them over the edge with that. Like, they really are more focused on doing it now more than ever because they don't want other people to go through this. They really want to be a change in the, in the healthcare field. But they're angry at the way in which the hospital handled this situation. Um, they're angry at their aunt quite a bit as well for her kind of siding with the doctors and ending my husband's life. 
So we're all we're all really trying to work through that that anger. But yeah, they're they're still pretty angry about that. And, and I think that's I mean that's more than fair. When when I read this story, it made me angry. And and to be you know to be the one going through it. I imagine that it is going to take them and you a long time to process that. And this has been something that the hospital has made it something so terrible as the loss that much worse in the way that they've handled it. Um, and, and I want to talk about that. But before we do, I've... I've read so much and and learned so much with the media that's going around and the videos that are are going around where you're talking about, Michael. And I think it's important for our listeners to kind of learn about him as he was before his accident and kind of tell us, you know, your love story and, and about the kind of dad he was, just who he was to you. So our, our story started back in 2002. Um, We met, it was, and this is kind of old school, I guess, but it, it was the, it wasn't really an online dating service. This was like a phone chat line. And so I was just about to, to close it out and I got a, a message from him because you could message each other when you're on there. And he actually messaged me and he said um, something to the effect of, you know, he'd like to talk to me a little bit more. And, and I disregarded it because I was like, I'm on here to get off of here, not to meet anybody. <laughs> okay. So I went on to check my messages and close out that phone service and he messaged me again and he was just like, okay, you ignored me the first time. Uh, what's going on? And so I thought, okay, he has a lot of nerve, first of all, you know, kind of messaging me again and questioning what I'm doing. You know, I was kind of, you know, kind of intrigued a little. So I, um, he left his phone number. I called him. We talked. It was a great conversation. And every night we talked after that, um, every <laughs> single night. So you know, we finally met at one point and um, I first date, I fell asleep in the movie theater. <laughs> um, I fell asleep on his shoulder in the movie theater, woke up, his arm was around me and the credits were rolling. And I looked at him so embarrassed, like, oh my gosh, I was asleep the whole movie. That's never happened before. And I was like, why did you let me sleep? And he said, well, I knew that you were tired and I wanted you to sleep. And from that moment on, I knew that he was a keeper. I left that night feeling like I've met my husband. Wow. We have been inseparable since two months after we met, we got married and the rest is pretty much history. He, we moved a couple of times, finally settling in Texas. His personality always has been one of which like, he's always been happy, easygoing, really, really, really smart. That's one of the things that drew me to him was the fact that he was so smart. He knew everything. He was a human calculator very inquisitive, very just, just that kind of nerdy kind of like person that you just, you know, that they just, you know, you kind of hate them a little bit for being so smart, but then it's kind of intriguing a little bit because they know everything. But he was that right mixture of like just nerdy, but kind of fun and laughter. And we joked all the time. We laughed and joked all the time. So pretty much his personality, you know, he loved games anything having to do with intellect, like Sudoku was his, his go-to, solitaire, crossword puzzles. I mean, anything that involved anything like that but was a game, he was all about it. He always saw his phone in his hand playing a game, no matter what it was. He loved, there's something called Ingress, where it's like a scavenger hunt-like type game um, with your phone, and he would get lost and play Ingress 
you know, we look up and say, where's that? And we look and 30 minutes later, he's walking up, still looking at his phone and just playing Ingrid. So, but he was a family man. He loved his kids. He, all he ever wanted in life. When we first met, we talked about what we wanted and all he wanted was kids and a house. That's all he ever wanted. And we came close a couple of times to the house part of it and just didn't make it. But we definitely can check the kid box. <laughs> <laughs> we did do that. Um, but, yeah, just really fun, easy going, loving God. The smile that can light up any room if you ask anyone who's ever met him. The first thing they'll say is his smile. He just had one of those smiles that just was inviting and loving and friendly and a genuine heart for loving people and a genuine heart for loving God. And so that's the things that people need to know about him, um, that he was a really great person. He will be missed. Sounds like uh, you were blessed to have him and he was blessed to have you. So we we kind of know that Michael had a traumatic brain injury and a, a spinal cord injury and, and that... Um, obviously dramatically changed not only his life but your life so kind of walk us through how we came to the new michael and and what he he was like after his injury there's a lot of conversation in your story about his quality of life and i think it's it's really beautiful how you talk about the life that he had after after his injury too yeah so he, we were actually doing our morning routine. He woke up that morning and we dropped our kids off at school like we normally did. The next stop was for him to drop me off at work. Um, and he had been doing that because six months before that, I had been involved in a car accident where I broke my hand and I was scared to drive. So he did all the driving. So he was driving. He dropped him off. Dropped, he was on his way to drop me off at work. We want a service road uh, right there near my job coming to a stop and he passed out of the wheel. He went into what I know now, of course, the sudden cardiac arrest. So he weren't in an accident, he just passed out. And then it took them quite a bit of time to resuscitate him the first time that he came back, went out again, and they resuscitated him again. So a total had been over an hour. And that caused what is known as an, an anoxic brain injury. There was extensive CPR done at the scene, which was right there on the, the asphalt that started um, and then continued at the hospital. And a few months later, when they were doing an um, assessment on him for physical therapy, they noticed that he couldn't feel below his waist. And then they did some x-rays and tests and things that showed that he had two, two spinal infarctions that possibly could have been removed, but because they didn't notice them in enough time, they were inoperable. So that left him quadriplegic. Maybe a few weeks after that, he said to me, why can't I see you? And then we found out that he couldn't see either. No, we didn't, no one knew before that. Um, he just said one day, you know, why can't I see you? And so they looked at that and they explained that it was um, cortical blindness. So he had episodes where, you know, here and there over the past three years where he could see something and then he couldn't see anymore after that. So that was the change in life at that point to me was more getting adjusted to the difference because there, there was, he still had the, they told me before well, at the beginning, the neurologist told me he would never be the same person, never same personality again. Um, but it turns out that that wasn't true. Um, when he did come out of the coma, he was the same person, same laughter, same smile, same, you know, jokes we talked, we laughed about before he laughed about. He remembered all of our life before. 
So he was pretty much, the, he was the same to me. The only thing, the difference was was slower speech with him. Because of the brain injury, he could move his arms and hands, um, but he couldn't feel below the waist, and he couldn't move the top half of his body. Um, but other neck, move his head, neck, everything else. So our life really changed, just kind of getting used to when he came home and his care was something I had to get used to because there weren't any resources to help me, kind of guide me through that process. I had to learn pretty much on my own. So that, but it was a fight the whole time trying to get insurance coverage and trying to get facilities to, you know, move him to rehab facilities. That was a fight. Trying to get them to move to any place else or do anything more for him was always a fight. The past three years, that has, that's been the fight is just trying to get him the right care, which there aren't a lot of resources. There aren't a lot of places that handle patients that have, especially anoxic brain injuries, which is considered an acquired brain injury, not traumatic. A lot of places don't okay. handle traumatic brain injuries. So that's been the fight. And, you know, you, you stepped in, right? You're, you don't have a medical background. Am I correct in no. saying that? That's and correct. you immediately... You went through this very traumatic, just it had to be terrifying ordeal with with just a situation where he did pass out and all of these things happen. And then you have to step into, you know, wife and partner into to wife and caregiver in a lot of ways. And how did that affect you? You know, your ability to go to work, to kind of provide for the kids, thinking about insurance. Um, you know, were there resources when this happened that were available to help your life as a caregiver or to provide you kind of mental health counseling, anything like that? No. So, no, there weren't. And you're correct. So, I've never, I never got counseling for what happened in the car that day. It was very traumatic. You know, when I just told the story, I didn't go over into detail about how my response was. You know, I look over and see him slumped over and thought he was joking at first. And then when I continued to try to tap him and he wasn't coming out of it, I realized it wasn't a joke. And I immediately went into panic mode. I, but I called 911, went into panic, put the car in, in park, called 911. And I, I was hysterical. A coworker of mine pulled me out of the car um, and drove me to the hospital when I waited to see him. So that's what happened that day. And it just... Um, so they, you know, my coworker drove me to the hospital, got there, and they put him in an induced coma, which in itself was traumatic to watch that, um, him laying there with all these things attached. And just re- remembering that just some time before, we were just having a conversation, and he was in the bed just laying there, lifeless. So that was hard. It, second hardest thing was that because I told you that I hadn't been driving in six months. I had a fear of driving. I had gone to counseling for driving because I couldn't do it. And I had to drive home from the hospital that day. It was the first time in six months I drove. And so I had to take on the responsibility, you're right, of being a single parent, caregiver. He was the breadwinner. That part of my income was gone. Resources I mentioned before weren't there. When we did ultimately apply for Medicaid and STAR, we got denied because did get his disability. We were actually $40 over the max for Medicaid. So I did have to continue with COBRA through his employer. Um, they fired him at the beginning of the next year. And so we lost everything under that. Kept the COBRA, and I was able to maintain that for 18 months. Oh, my I God. Lost two jobs. Yeah, I lost two jobs over the past three years because of just that commitment to, you know, to going to visit with him, trying to participate in therapy and um, be there for him. But 
I lost a couple of jobs. And, and you're right, like I mentioned before, that no one has any idea about what that life looks like because you are made out to look like a villain when you're fighting insurance companies or hospitals to get what you need. They don't do it nicely. <laughs> There's no, please, ma'am, do it. They, they won't. You do have to constantly kind of stay on them about it and, and prove why it's needed. And, you know, it's, it's a constant thing. And that, that was the case for all of the three years was that I had to be his advocate. I had to be mom and go to, to um, the kids' functions at school, drop them off, pick them up, go to work. When we moved to Austin, I had to take two jobs because of the requirement here where you have to make three times um, the rent and income. So that's, that was the issue. We've, we've been through it all, Julia, homelessness for a period of time. But in all three years, I was able to make sure his insurance premium was covered every single month. T-shirts, sold T-shirts, uh, GoFundMe's, whatever it took to try to get his insurance paid, even when we had nothing. So, yeah, it's been hard. And there haven't been resources, funding, anything for anyone in this situation. When I moved to Austin, I was told that I wasn't a single mom and couldn't participate in the programs for single moms because I was married. And in the program for married parents, I was told I couldn't participate because he wasn't in the home. So it's just, it was, it was a catch-22 situation with that one. Like, well, wait a minute, how... So we were kind of left to kind of figure it out on our own. Um, that's how I met a friend of mine who's a realtor. She helped me find a place. And here we are now. And, you know, with all of the work that you did and the advocacy, something that we talk a lot about and I talk a lot about in my daily life is how lowered expectations for people with disabilities cre- has created this system where were devalued and, and minimized. It's almost like, hey, if you can't work, like, wh- wh- what's your value to us? And what I have seen and read is that your advocacy, your championing advocacy for Michael and your aggressive work to get him the care that he needed, he did improve more than the doctors thought that he was going to. And you had a lot of the things about your husband back um, in terms of his personality and his joy due to to you not having those lowered expectations. Yeah, and that's correct. And you're right. I had to be an advocate for that because the way our system is currently set up, anytime you're disabled, they don't encourage improvement. They don't encourage a life of which you can be adaptable to things. They just dismiss you as if you don't exist. You can't do it. They they lower the bar um, as if because of it, you can't do it. And that's simply not true. It's not true at all. They They just refuse to admit that you can do it and give you options and resources to be able to help you get to that place to get to it. They rather just dismiss you and act like you just don't, they just not see you. You know what I mean? It's almost like the mm-hmm. elephant in the room. You know, you yeah. just, you, you know it's there, but nobody else sees it. But you're like, hey, there's this big elephant in the room. And they're just like, oh, never mind. You know, it, and it just, that's how it's always been. You said it correctly. I, when he went to, to rehab, I had to fight for that. And then insurance actually denied it two weeks later. <laughs> he was doing well, but I guess not according to those data numbers that should be. Um, not taking into consideration that he's had an anoxic brain injury. He's also blind. He might not be able to progress as fast as everybody else. It wasn't, he never was seen as an individual with his progression. They just dismissed him. Okay, these are the, the stats. You know what I mean? He needs to be mm-hmm. here. Why is he not there? 
that happened consistently with him. So you're correct. I mean, if I had not pushed as hard as I pushed, he never would have progressed back to the point that he was. He never would have been there. And I think that's the other part of this story that we all need to understand, right? Part of the story, kind of the second half, I guess, of the story is not about what happened to Michael, but it's what uh, it's what happened to you as his wife, as a black woman, as his incredible, strong caregiver. And I, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to it in the statement from the hospital, in newspaper reports. It, there's a concerted effort, and it's it's not hidden um, by those who treated Michael to absolve themselves and their organizations really by demeaning you and, and giving almost that that credence to the way that they treated Michael was okay because you were an advocate and you were aggressive and you had to fight. And as a wife, I, I can tell you that I applaud you for that and, and would have been as aggressive. And, and this is the result of it is this sort of demonization of you as they look to justify their callousness and, and disregard for Michael's life. I will tell you this, over the past three years um, in different hospitals and facilities where Michael's been a patient, I can tell you that, you know, if I ask a question, if I um, don't agree with something that's being said or done, um, the first impulse of most of these medical professionals is to call security, is to basically say that they're threatened in some way, just simply by me asking a question. Um, My kids have witnessed it. And they've, they've been like, Mom, what did you do? Like, why did they just do that? Like, why do they? And they'll, you know, I've had it happen several times where that's happened. And that's just from me asking a question or concerned about something in particular. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You know, no, that's not right. You know, no, don't do that. And they immediately have said, okay, you know, you're being threatening. And I know specifically that that is because I am a black woman. There's no other reason. We had a situation at one hospital where they called security because they didn't like me questioning what was going on. My daughter and I were sitting in the room like the next day or two later with Michael, and the door was open to the hallway. And there was a man in a wheelchair. They were rolling down the hall. Um, It was a white man. And he began to scream in the hallway, um, cursing profusely. And he said, where are my cigarettes? Where are my blah, blah, blah cigarettes? You took my cigarettes. I mean, he was going off and all. I remember the nurse coming to where he was, and she said, what's going on, sir? What's going on? And I remember my daughter and I looked at each other like, wow, they didn't call security. That's been the case several times before. If, if ever you say something that contradicts what they're doing or question what anyone is doing, the first thing they think as a black woman is that you're being threatening or combative or aggressive or assertive, or, you know, they need to call the police, they need to call security. That has been a recurring theme. And I and I talked to a friend of mine, um, she, is, she is a white woman, and she said to me, you know, that never happens to me. Like, I've, I've threatened to sue several times, you know, doctors and whatever, and they've never said that to me. They've never done that. And I was like, right, exactly. I, I Yeah, I'm sure it hasn't. It, it doesn't. You're seen automatically when you're a strong person 
um, as a black woman. We are a strong black woman. You are seen as threatening, combative, all the negative things, and all you're trying to do is ask questions, and that, that's been a recurring thing. So, yeah. And I, I can tell you that that immediately, right, as a, as a white woman who, who's in this world, that immediately jumped out to me, right? It, it wasn't something that you know, a, a story or our previous conversations or anything that I've read uh, from an opinion perspective has been planted in my brain, but it was evident in everything that I've read in terms of your interactions with, you know, through legal documentation, what we're seeing in the statements from from St. David's and all of those kind of things. It was evident um, that that was that was sort of the PR plan and then also how you were being addressed. And, and I think that, you know, that becomes the second part of the story that, that we're going to talk about on the podcast. Um, and so I, I thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and I guess as we just kind of wrap up, I, I have two more questions. And, you know, I know you're, you need to take time to, to take care of yourself and take care of the kids and figure out what the new kind of normal looks like for you, but what is, what is justice for Michael look like? What, what are we, what do we do next to help support continuing this conversation? So justice for him to me would be for those, the people involved, um, all the way from the court system to the medical healthcare system, to the guardianship system to be held accountable for what, you know, what they allowed to happen to him and, and to me and our family. That's the first thing. And I think that all in those different categories, legal and medical and guardianship, they all need to be looked at closer. There are definitely flaws in, that, in those systems um, that need to be addressed, um, more specifically for people that are disabled. You know, the, the guardianship needs to be take, taken a little look at as well as far as people being considered incapacitated. What does that look like? Can anybody just say that? Can anybody just take guardianship from somebody that is a responsible person that's done nothing but love and care for them just because someone objects? There has to be more to that. With the care of someone, there has to be something more than just looking at their physical disability to make a decision on whether or not they have quality of life. No one can make that decision but you. How, how you live your life is the quality of your life, not what physical disability you have or sickness or illness you have. That shouldn't be looked at in terms of whether you should receive treatment. The guardianship system as well, you know, that needs to be looked at closer. I mean, you wouldn't take your children to a daycare, you know, has had bad reviews or had some citations in the past. And are these places being looked at close enough to see whether or not they're actually capable of making decisions, especially in situations where there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, so all those things to me need to be looked at. And that's something I hope to change. Do you know if, if the doctor who who is in the YouTube recording, has he been, is there any reprimand or counseling that St. David's has communicated to you in terms of, of his language and his, um, his biases? No, not as far as I know. Um, they've not communicated with me on what they are actually doing with that doctor. I would hope that they are going through some process with him, you know, for training and kind of like just having a, a talk with him about what happened. I would hope that they are, but I, I don't know. They haven't told me anything. 
Gotcha. And and finally, we're going to share um, the, the GoFundMe page that your friend, um, I think her name is Julie also, put up to help with the family expenses and for you to just have some time to help kind of settle into the new normal. And, and we'll post that. But is there anything else we can do for you or your family um, right now? No. So her name is Jill. Jill. Um, but she is she is awesome, Julie. Um, that's the real part. I told you, help me to find my house. That's how we became friends, and we've been that way ever since. Um, she's been such support. I can't say enough about her. But, no, I think right now we're fine. Again, just taking some time to figure it all out. Um, it's a lot to kind of figure out from here where we go. But I think right now we're fine. I just really would appreciate the support of everyone as far as getting this message out, as far as speaking on what happened to my husband, as far as the, the probate court and guardianship, family elder care, and also St. David's, to keep speaking out like you're doing and letting them know, letting them know that you're not going to take this. Like, this, this has to change. That's what I really want is just support and getting them to be accountable for what they've done and to change things moving forward. Well, I hope that this um, gets a lot more people in, in your court. And, you know, it, I was in your court from the beginning, but after having a chance to spend some time with you and, and just see the, the kindness in your heart, I think it's hard to deny um, coming in and, and supporting you and your family. I thank you and I hope that you'll you'll keep us posted. The Crazy in the King podcast definitely wants to hear updates and hear how things are going. And also when there's opportunities to, to do more, if there's updates and those kind of things, that we can share with our listeners um, or activities that you want us to participate in, don't hesitate. We'll share and and keep everyone of our listeners apprised and and hopefully we'll um, work towards resolution because we have a lot of work to do, but these types of stories are, it it opens people's eyes in ways that we can't can't understand um, when we start to humanize people with disabilities and and hear those stories. So I thank you very much for, for that. You are welcome. I thank you my family thanks you and i'm sure that if michael were here he would thank you as well we really appreciate it thank you so much Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.